Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, July 1st. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, we talk with the exiting superintendent of education on the issues still facing the state. Then fireworks and grill safety with the Mississippi Fire Marshal. Plus, using black Americans' rich history in baseball to promote future diversity. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Carrie Wright left the position of state superintendent of education yesterday, retiring after eight and a half years leading the Department of Education. In part one of our conversation, we discussed the issues Wright prioritized when she arrived in the Magnolia State. Today, in part two, we examine the challenges the state still faces in its path to improvement. Mississippi has seldom, maybe once, twice, fully funded education. Mm -hmm. What difference did that make in terms of what you were trying to accomplish? Well, I think it makes it harder for districts because they're the ones that really get all of this money. Um, So I think it's made it harder for them on the, on the, on the end side to, to try and maybe purchase or do the things that they want to do. But I went at it a little bit different way. I, I ask for money for our initiatives, which is above and beyond the funding formula. So when I they when the literacy based promotion act was passed, that money came to the department. It was about nine and a half million dollars. And I said, um, after one year, I said I went back and said, if you want to improve literacy, we're going to need more than nine and a half million dollars every year. So they bumped it to fifteen million dollars, and they've given us fifteen million dollars ever since. Same thing with the early learning collaborative act. They gave us nine million dollars, or excuse me, three million dollars for that. And every year we've gone back, and now we're up to sixteen million dollars with an additional twenty. So I've looked at that as a way that we, as a state can continue to implement our initiatives with our professional development, with our resource development, with our coaches, because our coaches are paid for with that. Um, same thing with our early childhood people. Like, I've looked at that just very differently. I, I, if that's a decision that the legislature has made that they're going to continue to underfund the funding formula, I can't let that stop what the department is doing from trying to really make significant change across the state um, above and beyond the, the funding formula. And the legislature has been very good about funding our initiatives. I mean, whether it's been um, 
computer science. Now we have money for computer science. We had been doing that without any funding. Um, the same, the same thing is hold true with any of our initiatives. They, when I've gone and asked for the funds, they've typically given me the funds to, to work with as the department. They still continue, to your point, to underfund the funding formula, but, um, that's, that's a decision that they're going to have to make and, and we just keep moving on with, with, with the work that we've got to do. Well, when the pandemic hit Mississippi, yeah. what went through your mind? Because we mm-hmm. didn't know what was going on. Mm-hmm. You had to worry about the school districts, mm-hmm. the administrators, mm-hmm. everybody in the schools, the children. What were your yeah. thoughts? So my leadership team and I went into a, literally an emergency mode. Um, we were on a call with each other, uh, virtually, obviously, seven days a week. Did you lose sleep? Yeah, we lost a lot of sleep. I mean, it was, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? We went also on to a daily communication with across the state. I've got listservs now, um, one listserv that has um, all superintendents, all principals, all teachers, special ed directors, curriculum you know, directors, anybody that's anybody across the state is on this listserv. And so we went to a daily communication with those people, um, letting them know. I reached out to Dr. Dobbs. He was one of the first piece, persons that I reached out to because he was running, obviously, the health end of the pandemic. And CDC was coming out with guidelines. So we were gathering as much information as we possibly could. The Council of Chief State School Officers that I belong to, that all the 50 states belong to, um, we were in constant communication. They were running, they were running calls. So the, we as chiefs were sharing what we were doing around the nation. I'd come back. Our leadership team would be on calls. And I mean, literally through the weekends. OK, this needs to get out. This needs to get out. This needs to get out. And what else do they need? And we pivoted to virtual PD for our teachers because we knew that they needed the professional development. I was still meeting PD professional development. So I meet with my teacher's advisory council. There's about 400 teachers across the state. And I met with them. I want to say it was either late April um, and, and they were saying, oh, my gosh, we need help and how to set up a Google Classroom, how to schedule a Zoom call, all the things that they needed to, to function virtually. And so we then came up with all the professional development. We partnered with MPB uh, to make sure that there were the station had lessons, content lessons available for children, even if they, you know, were when they were at home, starting at 7 a.m. and running all day long. Uh, you employed our teachers to come and, you know, perform all these lessons. Uh, we set up a um, website with information for teachers and lessons for teachers and instructional materials for teachers. Uh, we did as much as we possibly could with the funds that we had and the times that we had to make sure that the teachers knew that we were constantly communicating with them and that any resources that we got our hands on, we w- would come out in that daily update. We did that through about September and then we dropped to two days a week. So still to this Are day. Are talking about 2020? To February, or, or excuse me, September 2020. So when the schools started to reopen some, um, we now have the update every Tuesday, Thursday, and we have kept that. So the districts know that every Tuesday and Thursday they're going to be getting information from us. And it's still not over. No, it's not. And some of the COVID numbers are continuing to rise. And But Dr. Dobbs and Dr. Byers, I cannot say enough about the partnership because we were on calls together too. Okay, here's here, what can, and Dr. Dobbs met with all the superintendents virtually. You know, here's what I know. Here's what the numbers are. Here's what you should be looking for. Particularly when you started looking at, 
you know, quarantining and shutting down again and all of those rules and regulations, we were really using Dr. Dobbs, Dr. Byers and the CDC guidance because that's 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 all we had. But we did it in a very, I think, very um, strategic and very um, coherent way so that they weren't getting one piece of information somewhere and another piece of another piece of information. We were giving them our best thinking at the time. We saw the aftermath of a heartbreaking situation at the school in Uvalde, Mm. Texas, Mm. where 21 people Mm. were killed. Absolutely. In terms of arming teachers who are willing to do so, do you think that that would be an appropriate way to provide some additional security? So it brings me back um, to an interview I saw once with um, two teachers, and it was right after Parkland. And the one teacher had been in the military and had then come back and wanted to teach. The other teacher had just come up through the ranks. And so the interviewer asked them that very question, would you feel better if you had a gun? And the military teacher said, well, we train every day on a gun. She goes, I I haven't touched a gun since I left the military. She said, you don't just pick up a gun if you're not trained every day on how to use it. And then the next teacher said, are you asking me if I could shoot one of my own students? And that remark really struck with me because teachers are nurturers by nature. You know, that's not their first instinct even. And I thought about that. I thought about that. I was a teacher. Even if I was trained on using a gun, would I be able to shoot one of my own students? And so I don't know that more guns is the issue, I, the solution. I, I don't know that that's a solution. Um, there may be teachers that feel very comfortable using a weapon, um, but it's different when you're out at a firing range than it is when you're looking at a human being that's standing in front of you, albeit with an AK-47. And so I, I, I don't know that that is the solution for what we need to be doing. Dr. Kim Benton is going to be stepping yeah. into your role July yeah. 1st. Have you been meeting with her? What oh, I know Kim are you very preparing well. her, yeah. you know, to move forward in this role yeah. because yeah. you're retiring? Yeah, well, she's, she worked with me before. So she was my chief academic officer before she retired. And so she's been a part of our team, like, right from the beginning. I, as soon as I was here, Kim was here. And so she's very well aware of the work, very well aware of the districts and the schools and, and what we're trying to get accomplished. She's been, she was knee deep in it when she was here. So when um, my prior uh, chief academic officer left, I brought her back in an interim role anyway as the chief academic officer. So she's been side by side with me. I feel that this, the state and the department's going to be in really good hands with Dr. Ben. Carrie Wright is now the former state superintendent of education. Coming up, fireworks and grill safety with the Mississippi Fire Marshal. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together.
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Fireworks, barbecues, and John Philip Sousa are staples at many 4th of July celebrations. But due to recent dry conditions, the pop and sizzle of the pyrotechnic displays could present some dangers this holiday. State Fire Marshal Mike Cheney shares some July 4th safety tips with us. They're great entertainment, but there are some dangers, especially with the drought that we're seeing in Mississippi at the present time. If you shoot fireworks at night, you don't know where they're going if you're using things like bottle rockets and and candles. And you've got to be certain that they're not going where they can start a fire. So in addition to all the safety standards, we say be be certain that you understand the safety aspect of your neighbors and start maybe starting a fire. So we tell folks every year, same thing, observe your local laws. Oh, in the city, if you're in the municipalities and cities, observe those laws. If you're in the county, observe those. And some municipalities in Mississippi prohibit fireworks from being used inside the city limits. So we say, folks, look, use common sense, read and follow the directions that are on all the firework packages when you buy them. Buy from approved areas. People that have the tents that have been inspected, buy from them. You never point to throw fireworks at another person. They should never reignite something that didn't go off. They should never experiment or attempt to uh, make their own fireworks. Some kids do by making bigger fireworks. They take what we used to call blockbusters and put them together to make one big firecracker. That's extremely dangerous. Have a bucket of water and a water hose handy to put out any fire that may start in the yard or the neighbor's yard. Always have an adult present when you shoot fireworks. And never put them in a glass or metal container. If you do that, you run the risk of injuring someone nearby. So these are just common sense approaches. Are there any tricks or things that you always tell people to do to reduce being injured? What we tell folks is be real certain that you have an adult present. Uh, when small children are handling fireworks or even observing fireworks, they'll run out to say, ooh, it's wonderful. But you don't want a small six- or seven-year-old child running up close to a rocket that's about to go off or fireworks that are about to ignite. They can be hurt very, very severely. And along that line, we've had more than 15,000 injuries in the United States during firework displays in 2020. And we don't have the latest numbers for 2021, but they're telling us they were even up higher in 2021 than they were in 2020, simply because COVID was over. So the um, CPSC, that's the Consumer Product Safety Commission, reports that there was was a 50% increase in deaths and injuries compared to 2019 and 2020, and there was about a 20% increase in injuries uh, preliminary. These are preliminary numbers over 21. That's pretty serious. It's just the fact that people have not taken fireworks safety seriously, and you need to do that in Mississippi. This upcoming holiday is one where people like to barbecue, grill out, be outdoors, roasting marshmallows, etc. What should people be aware of when they decide they're going to grill or barbecue? On the 4th of July, the tradition is for folks to get outside and and have a good time and barbecue. So we tell them if you have a grill, especially a propane grill, do not put it inside the garage or under the eave of the house because rain starts. And we may have rain on the 4th of July. 
be certain that that grill is out in the yard. If it's got propane, be sure your connections are tight. Be very careful when you ride a propane uh, barbecue grill. The propane is heavier than air, and if you leave the grill on before it's ignited, the propane can sink down, and when it ignites, it will flame up, and you can be injured very severely. Thank goodness that we just have not had a lot of propane injuries uh, with barbecue uh, grills and pits in the last few years. But we do have injuries with people trying to use charcoal lighter on, on charcoal grills or get using gasoline instead of an approved lighter. And uh, people are, have been severely burned. So we say never use gasoline to start a charcoal grill. Never, never use gasoline. Don't use diesel fuel. Use an approved charcoal lighter or the self-igniting charcoal if, it, if you use a charcoal grill. Is there one that's safer than the other, gas or charcoal? Well, when you look at grills between charcoal and gas, we believe that gas seems to be a tad safer sometime in the way they operate because you have an even heat. Uh, you don't try to put more grill on at any time. Of course, the trade-off is that some people prefer a smoked flavor with uh, their barbecue, so they'll use charcoal. So you, you, there's some trade-offs, and you, you can't you, you can use wood chips that are wet on a barbecue grill that's a propane. But you can't um, use regular charcoal to get the enhanced smoke that you normally would get. But uh, that's up to a consumer. Uh, propane seems to have a better safety record at the present time. That could change any day. But they do have a safety record that's a little better than regular charcoal at the present time. So say you have whatever you're doing outside in the yard and it starts raining. What is safe to do? The best thing to do when you're outside and it starts to rain is to cover the grill. Uh, if you have a propane grill, you can just pull the top down and cut the gas off. Uh, if you have a charcoal grill, normally they will have a cover to put on them, unless they're one of the uh, what we call throwaway-type grills that you use for camping that has no top. We do not suggest that you bring that grill in or even try to pick it up. It's going to be hot to begin with and put it under the eave of the house or under a carport or in a garage. That's a very dangerous thing to do. Commissioner Cheney, thank you so much for giving us this wise information and precautions that we should all be taking. Thank you. Coming up, using Black Americans' rich history in baseball to to promote future diversity. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. What about a diaper bag? Um, Well, the diaper bag is... Some folks will leave a diaper bag in the vehicle, uh, so it's easier for a diaper bag to become, uh, shall we say, the background, something that's uh, ordinarily there and might not be uh, as quick to catch one's attention. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A minor league baseball team on the Mississippi coast will celebrate black Americans' rich history in baseball while promoting future diversity. On Saturday, the Biloxi Shuckers will honor the Biloxi Dodgers of the Southern Negro League. The Dodgers played in eastern parts of the coastal town from the 1940s to the 1980s. Gordon Jackson, who serves as chair of the NAACP Baseball Diversity Committee, tells MPB's Michael Guidry the event is part of an effort to help grow black participation in the sport to the levels 
of the 1970s. In the mid-70s, you know, and of course this was after Jackie Robinson broke the color line in 1947, the uh, participation of black Americans, and need to distinguish that from you know, maybe black Latinos or black Hispanics, the participation of black Americans in baseball was up to about 27%. And now this season, uh, it has continued to dwindle. And now this season, it is only less than 7%. I think the exact figure they t- they uh, figured out was about 6.8%. And so in examining why that is such a case, we're trying to turn it around and reverse that so that hopefully we, we can uh, get those numbers uh, back up. What are the factors? I mean, you've, you said we've gone from um, the, the 70s uh, in the mid to high 20 percent of participation for black Americans to it being mm-hmm. so low. Now, what are some of the factors you've identified that have led to this? Is it the popularization of the NFL, the NBA? Uh, is it barriers to access at the youth level? Kind of what have what have you identified as factors leading to that decline? From the best we can tell, there's been several factors. I, I think one of the factors has been. Uh, the uh, competition from football and basketball from the NFL and the NBA. Also, uh, theoretically, baseball is a more expensive sport uh, to uh, to support, to, to sponsor. And throughout the years, baseball fields uh, uh, were less and less available. And so, uh, so our black youth geared easily more to more toward those uh, toward the other sports. Other factors, I, I think, too. A person gets started in baseball by, uh, among many things, playing catch with their father. And while there has been a realistic uh, uh, element of uh, less father figures in the community, that's a factor that has been missing uh, to help introduce uh, a young person from our community to to, uh, baseball. And it's just the way that uh, inner city communities have just not gotten the reinvestment dollars over the years and things like things of that nature. So it's a lot of a lot of different reasons. I'd like to shift to the event. Do you feel it's important to celebrate, you know, the Negro Leagues of the past as our proximity to that past is getting further and further away? Are less kids, even though they understand the story of Jackie Robinson and that color barrier, is this an attempt to kind of not only bring in the game, but remind people of the excellence that that league uh, embodied. Yeah. Unfortunately, that is one of the challenges. As as you say, as we move further and further away from the golden years of the Negro Leagues, from when Jackie Robinson broke the color line in 47, and there's just not enough of a strong sense of teaching that history back to the younger generation to help them keep, keep, uh, make be aware of how these things were here in the first place, and why they why they seem to be dubbed, uh, uh, you know dissipating in a lot of in a lot of different ways, and so uh, is the necessary. That's one of the way. That's one of the reasons we do this to give that historical perspective. And what we're doing this weekend is that we are saluting the Biloxi Dodgers, which was a Negro League team uh, that played uh, particularly in East Biloxi from the from the mid 40s to the 80s. And things and uh, and and was a staple in the East Biloxi community back when community uh, East Biloxi was in its heyday as a strong entertainment district, as a strong business district. We're trying to revive that and revive that to to the conscious level 
of uh, of of everybody, not only the uh, people who remember the Biloxi Dodgers, but the young people who weren't who weren't there as well. I, I kind of want to leave this last part open. And is there anything about um, expanding diversity in, in baseball and the and the efforts of your committee that we haven't talked about already that you'd like to articulate? Maybe looking forward, future future plans, anything like that. There are two at least formal initiatives that's going back. In Major League Baseball, they do have an RBI program, that, and it's called uh, Reviving Baseball in the Inner Cities. And uh, and then in the minor league just this year, they started the program called The Nine, uh, and it's named after Jackie Robinson's jersey number when he played uh, in the minor leagues that one year in the minor leagues with Montreal that he played before he uh, went to the Dodgers the next year. So the organized baseball institutions are trying formal programs and and things of that nature to try to uh, build. And then now also there's re, uh, a regenerative effort uh, to to uh, focus on HBCU uh, baseball programs. And, and an example was that was when we had Jackson State and Mississippi Valley State at MGM Park. Uh, a, a, a few weeks back, and we 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 continue, we hope to build that up and continue that. Well, Gordon Jackson, chair the Biloxi NAACP Baseball Diversity Committee, uh, thank you so much for sharing uh, this with us today. I, I really I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the the time. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.